0: Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. All right, we're continuing our series in the book of Luke. And Mark is uh, taking a few weeks off. So I've got, I've got Luke 15 this week. And then he's given Ashley a really hard passage, the famous uh, Luke 16, uh, the parable of the shrewd server. So... And then the week after that, it's got sort of, the NOV calls it unannotated verses or additional verses, which are extremely hard to interpret, which Mark's passed on to me as well. But he did give me Luke 15, so I can't complain, which is one of the great uh, books in the Bible. So the amount of energy we put in to looking for something that is lost depends very much upon the value of the thing that we've lost. So the other day I came home from the gym and pulled the headphone uh, out of my ear and the little rubber stopper on the end of it popped off and flew off somewhere. Uh, And so I stood around for a few minutes, sort of looked around a little bit. And I remembered I've got a packet full of spare earphone uh, plugs in my drawer and I thought, oh, I'll just pop a new one of those on. And I just walked away and left it there. Then was the time we lost our daughter. <laughs> you probably all had that experience. Uh, so it was church one Sunday, and uh, we're after busy, and we're, we're talking to people. Uh, we get ready to go home, and I go to Lynette, oh, I thought Brooke was with you, and Lynette goes, oh no, I thought Brooke was with you. Ah, <sighs> Panic, do I go, oh, I've got another daughter at home. <laughs> no. There's a value there for a, for a daughter. And so we're searching, we, we search high and low in the church, all the little rooms, all the little places she'd hide. We went upstairs, downstairs in the church hall, run down the street looking for her, look in a park, looking for her. Uh, and then just about that time, her and her little friend march back up into the church. They've had a lovely time just going around the block uh, and uh, they didn't think to tell anybody. So the, the, the value we place on something determines the amount of energy and anxiety we'll put into searching for them. In Luke 15, this is a story about the value that God places on things that are lost. And uh, in, if you've got your Bibles there, Luke chapter 15 starts with, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So tax collectors and sinners. So tax collectors were the uh, acted on behalf of the Roman authorities who were the oppressors of Israel at the time, franchising the tax business for the Roman rulers. And so they were hated for that, but they were extra hated because usually they were corrupt and would uh, collect more tax than they needed to and pocket it. And so they were, were hated. So that's now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering with Jesus. The sinners were the term that the religious leaders used to describe people who, who were not up to standard. They, they said, oh, we're the pure people, so they must be the sinners. And so it included those who were outright immoral, people who, who were uh, corrupted and you know, like the tax collectors. But it also included people whose job made them ritually unclean. So in those days, there were the tanners, so people who worked with tan and made leather work, were considered permanently unclean because they had to touch dead things all the time. And there were uh, undertakers uh, and, and other professions. They were just simply, they could never, ever be clean. They were always considered sinners by those who were upholding the religious standards or so they thought. But it also extended even to people in villages who lived around in the remote areas of Israel. Because they couldn't get to the temple, they couldn't purify themselves. And and they certainly couldn't, if there wasn't a synagogue in their village, they they weren't participating in that type of community either. And so they were called sinners by the religious elite. And these are the people who are, are gathering around Jesus. And and so these are the ones that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutter about. This man welcomes, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Of course, eating was a sign of acceptance. And so they they were very condemning. Now, in response to this muttering by the, the tax collectors or the Pharisees and the teachers, Jesus tells three parables. The first one, famously called the parable of the lost sheep. Verse four, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbours together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's, it's a little questionable this the, 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 the idea of leaving the 99 sheep, and Jesus says, in the open country. Yeah, that's it. Leaving, that's a sheep. <laughs> Uh, leaving the, the 99 in the, in the open country to go and find the one sheep. And, and maybe some of us would go, oh, hang on. Maybe it's not worth the, risking the 99 to find that one sheep that has wandered off. But nevertheless, that's what this farmer does. And, and then there is this great celebration. The farmer has decided this sheep, this individual sheep is of great value. And so there is this great celebration, calls his friends together and celebrates it. Jesus tells another parable. Suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Similar story, similar message. Uh, the value is slightly different. So in, in those days, uh, a woman might wear uh, her dowry or her, her savings in a, in a, uh, a headband. And, and usually be, this woman has 10 coins uh, around her head. And one day she reaches up and realizes one of the coins is gone, goes on a search, that the rooms, the houses were dark and no windows, uh, she searches around on the floor, and when she finds it, the same celebration gets her friends together. This is fantastic, and and Jesus says, "In heaven, when one sinner repents, one sinner repents. That's a cause for a party, and uh, and and everybody celebrates." And then Jesus tells the third story. This parable of the lost son. We've 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 dealt with a lot in the last couple of years, but it's worth reading again, isn't it? who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. You killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Three stories with the thing lost having different values. So one in a hundred one in ten, one in two. But in each situation, the person who has lost this thing values this thing extraordinarily and drops everything and searches thoroughly to find the the, the sheep or the coin or the the son. And each time there is a celebration on earth reflecting the celebration in heaven when one single sinner repents and becomes part of the kingdom of God. And so in, the, in response to this criticism from the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, Jesus is saying, lost people matter to God. They matter an extraordinary amount to him. He is willing to do anything, even send his son to die on the cross, in order to, to save and find that which is lost. We seek to be like God. We seek to share God's values and, and the things that concern Him. But this, I think, in particular, this teaching is so overwhelming for us when we think about all of the millions of people in the world and all of the suffering that's going on. And, that, and that we set, we feel called somehow to respond to. Uh, we think about the the, the tragedy in, in in the Middle East, in in, in Turkey and, and, and Syria, and we think about the flooding in New Zealand and the, the suffering and the, and the lostness that people are experiencing. And As individuals, we go, I, I can't possibly respond to, to this amount of need the, the way that, that God does. And this has been going on for centuries. I, I came across this photo the other day and it, it caught me. And it, it was, It's a picture of three young men from Austria... Who This photo's taken at the end of the First World War and, and they're in a hospital. They've been in a hospital and you can see their emaciated state. And, and you just think, just three men, we don't even know their names, but we know they suffered enormously out of this, all of these millions and millions of people you know, that have lived during human history. So what is the value of an individual human being? Writer Philip Yancey, tells a story that had a profound impact on him. He, he used to meet with his pastor, this is a few years ago, who in Chicago. And uh, he, he would meet with his pastor about once every month and, and just have a bit of counselling and spiritual nurture from his, his pastor. But, but one particular time, stuck in his memory for the whole of his life. And what had happened is the week before a church, the, the pastor had done a, a, a spiel the same way that uh, Pastor Mark sometimes writes stuff on the front of our our news bulletin. And, and, and in it, this pastor, Philip Yancey's pastor, had mentioned that he was one of the American soldiers who liberated Dachau, the German-Jewish German, prisoner, uh, German Jewish concentration camp at the end of the World War II. So um, the, 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 the Nazis uh, put all of the, the Jews together in a number of these concentration camps, one of them outside Munich or Dachau, where literally hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed. And, and this... Um, Man was part of a group that came in and liberated that. And and Yancey asked him, I saw in the the bulletin last week that you were one of the soldiers who went into Dachau. What what was it like for you? And Yancey says that it was almost a whole minute that the pastor just sat there and his eyes flickered backwards and forwards as he he tried to grasp and and recall what what the experience had been like for him. And then, when he began to speak, this is what he said. For weeks, we had heard wild rumours about the camps. But inured to war propaganda, we gave little credence to such talk. But nothing prepared us, nothing could possibly prepare us for what we found inside. A buddy and I were assigned to one boxcar. Inside were human corpses, stacked in neat rows exactly like firewood. The Nazis, ever meticulous, had planned out the rows, alternating the head and the feet and accommodating different sizes and shapes of bodies. Our job was like moving furniture. We would pick up each body, so light, and carry it to a designated area. Some fellows couldn't do this part. They stood by the barbed wire fences, retching. I couldn't believe it the first time we came across a person in the pile who was still alive, but it was true. Incredibly, some of the corpses weren't corpses. They were human beings. We yelled for doctors, and they went to work on these survivors straight away. I spent two hours in that boxcar. Two hours that, for me, included every known emotion, rage, pity, shame, revulsion, every negative emotion, I should say. They came in waves, all but the rage. It stayed, fueling our work. We had no other emotional vocabulary for such a scene. After we had taken the few survivors to a makeshift clinic, we turned our attention to the SS officers now in charge of Dachau, who were being held under guard in a bunkhouse. Army intelligence had set up an interrogation centre nearby. It was outside the camp, and to reach it, you had to walk down a ravine and through a copse of trees. The captain asked for a volunteer to escort a group of 12 SS prisoners to the interrogation interrogation centre, and Chuck's hand shot right up. Chuck was the loudest, brashest, most volatile soldier in our company. He stood about five feet, four inches tall, but he had really long arms so that his hands hung down around his knees like a gorilla. He came from Cicero, a suburb of Chicago known mainly for its racism and its association with Al Capone. Chuck claimed to have worked for Al Capone before the war, and no one doubted it. Well Chuck grabbed a submachine gun and prodded the group of SS prisoners down the trail. They walked ahead of him with their hands locked back behind their heads, their elbows sticking out on either side. A few minutes after they disappeared into the trees, we heard the rattly burp of a machine gun in three long bursts of fire. We all ducked. It could have been a German sniper in the woods. But soon Chuck came strolling out, smoke curling from the tip of his weapon. They all tried to run away, he said with a kind of a leer Yancy interrupted the story at this point and said did anybody report Chuck the pastor laughed and gave him a you've got to be kidding look the pastor said no that's what really got to me it was on that day that I felt called by God to become a pastor what The pastor went on. First, there was the horror of the corpses in the boxcar. I could not absorb such a scene. I did not even know how such absolute evil existed. But when I saw it, I knew beyond doubt that I must spend my life serving whatever opposed such evil, serving God. Then came the incident with Chuck. I had a nauseating fear that the captain might ask me to escort the next group of SS guards, and an even greater dread that if he did, I might do the same thing as Chuck. The beast that was within those guards was also within me. Yancey couldn't coax any more from the reminiscing past of that day. Either he'd probed the past enough or he felt obligated to move to his own agenda. But before they left the subject entirely, Yancey asked a question, which he looks back at now and says it was incredibly imprudent. Tell me, after such a cosmic call to ministry, confronting the great evil of this century, how does it feel, how do you feel to fulfil that call by sitting in this office, listening to middle-class yuppies like me ramble on about their personal problems? His answer came back quickly, as if he'd been asked the same question many times. He said, I do see a connection. Without being melodramatic, I sometimes wonder what might have happened if a skilled, sensitive person had befriended the young, impressionable Adolf Hitler as he wandered the streets of Vienna in his confused state. The world might have been saved all of that bloodshed. It might have been spared Dachau. I never know who might be sitting in that chair that you're occupying right now. And even if I spend my entire life with nobodies, I learned in the boxcar there is no such thing. Those corpses with a pulse were as close to nobodies as you can get, mere skeletons wrapped in papery skin. But I would have done anything to keep those poor, ragged people alive. Our medics stayed up all night to save them. Some in our company lost their lives to liberate them. There are no no nobodies. There are no no nobodies. I learned that day in Dachau what the image of God in a human being is all about. We get back to our friends in Austria, the guy on your right. You might notice him a few years later with some of his other friends. As we spend our days, day by day and moment by moment with with people, we can be tempted to be overwhelmed by their needs and we can be tempted to give up. That uh, friend at work who is captured by materialism and spends his whole life thinking about his next car or his next career or his next overseas trip or his (coughs) next girlfriend. Or that gambler or drug addict you've you've had contact with over the years and you've spend ages and ages, days and days dollars and dollars trying to help them to get back on track but they never seem to make any progress or that young Christian you know who you've been discipling over the years and you've been trying to to help them grow but year after year after year they just keep falling into the same traps and making the same mistakes and you you doubt whether you will ever actually be able to help them to, to grow in their relationship with God Or even a child you sponsor in Africa and uh, you're you're giving means that they can receive good education and good health care and and grow up with with good nutrition. But what happens when they leave school? They're living in this country which is torn to bits by civil war and, uh, and violence. And we can feel overwhelmed and we can feel as though we can't make a difference. But the fact is, lost people matter to God. Every conversation counts. Every conversation can change a person's life. And there are no nobodies. An old man was walking along a beach once and the storm overnight had swept up on the beach hundreds and thousands of of starfish uh, they're, they're on the, the tides out and they're dying on the beach there and they're, they're shivering and dying in the heat. And as he walks on the beach, he notices a young boy who's picking a starfish up and throwing them back into the ocean. And As the old man draws near to him, he says, you're wasting your time. There's hundreds and thousands of these. What difference do you think you can make? And the young guy picks up one and throws it back into the ocean and says, it made a difference for that one. We can make a difference. One by one, let's make a difference. Lord, we are overwhelmed sometimes by the suffering in this world and the, the sheer number of lost people, particularly those who need to hear your gospel and respond to it with repentance and faith. And Father, we pray you'll help us not to be overwhelmed. We pray that as we reflect upon Luke 15 and these stories which reveal just how much you love the lost, and how much they matter to you, Lord, may may it touch our heart as well that we will be be moved within our circle of influence uh, to make a difference, to speak a word, to, to do a deed that expresses to people your love and the truth of your gospel. And Lord, we pray that we can make a difference one by one, conversation by conversation this week as we go into your world as your ambassadors and in the power of your name. We ask this through Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.